Before us today is a look at the progress of redemption in the book of Exodus. And Exodus is a, a marvelous book. It begins uh, with the word and uh, in the Hebrew. So it is a connection, really, to the book of Genesis. It's certainly that which um, would connect one with the other here. So Exodus is a continuation of God's story. And it certainly is one of our, one of our goals to see uh, the sweep of the way that God has worked in history uh, to his people, to those whom he calls to himself, and so we certainly see that in the book of Exodus. And I'd like to draw your attention really to three different ideas today as we look at this, this entire book here. One of those ideas is creation, is this motif of creation that certainly began in Genesis, the book of beginnings, but also we see that it is the intention of the Lord to continue to use this concept of creation throughout Scripture, and we will look at that as we look at the book of Exodus, and also create not only creation itself, but creation language um, that we'll look at. Secondly, this idea of the law. The law of God is given to uh, the people of God on Mount Sinai, to Moses. And so we see uh, that really two things occurred on that mount. Uh, one was that, uh, or while they were at Sinai, one was that they were given the law. The second was that they were given the instructions about the tabernacle. So really three ideas, creation, creation language, the law of God, and thirdly, the tabernacle. And we see that these, uh, not only these, uh, these things in Scripture, creation, language, the law of God, and the tabernacle are spoken and sweep through, through um, Scripture, but also we see the ways that God has uh, entered into the fulfilling aspects of creation, also of the law of God, also of this concept of tabernacle or temple that we see in the Lord Jesus Christ ultimately. And so let's, let's dive in here with this first idea, and that is that Israel's redemption from Egypt is described in creation language. And this is one of the reasons that this concept of creation, the biblical record of creation, is so very, very important. And it is... Uh, it is something uh, that even, apparently, many evangelicals are interested in deconstructing and attacking. And we will look, I will reference a recent article in Christianity Today regarding this. But nonetheless, this first point, Israel's redemption from Egypt is described in creation language. So I draw your attention to chapter 1, verse 7. Chapter 1, verse 7. But the people of Israel were fruitful and increased greatly. They multiplied and grew exceedingly strong so that the land was filled with them. Now, read in your hearing here was uh, verse 5, and that is how many people came to Egypt? Seventy. About the size of our congregation. About seventy people came to Egypt. And they left, of course, several hundred years later, uh, a mass of people. And what we see here is that uh, while they were not uh, notoriously following the Lord in many ways, we do see that they entered into at least one aspect of obedience, and that is they were fruitful and they multiplied, certainly far beyond uh, what we see in the nation of Egypt. Uh, and so they took the commands of God seriously, the command of God given, in, given to the animals. God gave a command to the animals to be fruitful and multiply, Genesis chapter 1, verse 22. He also gave that command, of course, to Adam and Eve in Genesis 1, 28, and to Noah and his sons in Genesis 9, 
verses 1 and verse 7. So what we see is, again, this sweeping language of creation, right? It's something that we see the Lord uh, going back to time and time again as we look at the sweep of history of the biblical record. This idea of creation language. Now, there are, there are some sophisticated theologians that would commend the, uh, the concept of biblical fruitfulness of multiplication, this idea that, uh, that families, uh, not only uh, small families with the uh, prescribed 1.8 children or whatever it is, but uh, this idea that, that uh, to the glory of God we have, we have families. Uh, some would, would certainly tip their hat to that, but they might say, uh, that pragmatically it's destructive to the environment. It, in fact, is uh, you know, difficult, tedious, makes, makes it such that we can't enjoy our you know, first world uh, kind of lifestyle and so forth. But frankly, uh, that's not a true statement. Uh, the reality is, the stark reality uh, is that, frankly, um, growing populations grow economies. Uh, that's, 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 a, that's a matter of fact. Growing populations grow economies. Um, and so, and so it, it was of interest to me as I studied this week that the average, uh, the average occupant load of a home in Tokyo is less than two. Less than two. So it wouldn't surprise you uh, that Japan, of course, is likely leading the way for companion and healthcare robots. Why is that? Because they don't have any people. They don't have any people. Our own nation is at, uh, is at a population growth that is negative. Uh, and so uh, we, we are not having the children simply to replace the people that are here. Yes, we have a lot of immigration, some of which we're very thankful for. Uh, and so nonetheless, we, we see that, uh, in fact, God's purpose and plan uh, was... Uh, it, it doesn't matter whether it was pragmatically... Uh, you know, good, but nonetheless it is. That's, that's our look at reality, is that it was pragmatically good. The command to be fruitful and multiply is clear, it's unconditional, and because of the fall it's become more difficult. It's also become more difficult. Part of this difficulty is that anti-God forces will attempt to persuade others of the need to not have children, and will actually encourage killing children for their own supposed benefit of a better life Without them. Far from God's dominion mandate, Pharaoh commanded the abortion of male children. In verse 15 of chapter 1, the king of Egypt said to the Hebrew midwives, one of whom was named Shipra and the other Pua, When you serve as a midwife to the Hebrew women and see them on the birth stool, if it is a son, you shall kill him. But if it is a daughter, she shall live. But the midwives feared God and did not do as the king of Egypt commanded them, but let the male children live. Again, while there was uh, no doubt a a troublesome lack of following the Lord amongst the Hebrews at that time, 
Uh, and we see this throughout the sweep of history. Certainly in the Exodus, there was grave difficulty. There was much grumbling and complaining. Joshua said, put away the foreign gods and so forth. So we see it was still a part of their lives. But nonetheless, they did recognize some of the very basic ideas of the sanctity of human life, of life as God has created it. They did recognize that it was absolutely wrong to kill little children. And so they understood that and did not obey the king at that point. And so we might ask ourselves a question, when God has called us, again, using creation language, about being fruitful, what does that mean? What, is it, what does it mean to be fruitful? Is it only the bearing of children? Is, uh, is being fruitful about innovation? Is it about uh, exalting a certain aspect of technology? Is it, is it about uh, uh, space exploration? Is that what fruitfulness means? I, d- I don't think primarily it does. I think that primarily fruitfulness is about us delighting ourselves in children and investing ourselves in being used of God as a means by which there would be God followers. Did the Lord Jesus Christ, did he not say to the woman at the well, did he not say that God is seeking worshipers? Did he not say that? Did he not say that God is seeking worshipers? He didn't say that God was seeking a new spacecraft. Okay, look, there's, there's nothing inherently wrong with space travel. Okay, but it, there is something wrong with our priority, right, and our exaltation of a certain kind of fruitfulness over biblical fruitfulness, right? This is the idea. How are what are we doing? What are we doing? And Dallas, with this this creation language and this fruitfulness, this concept that God is continuing in the book of Exodus is very very important. Very, very important to us. And we see these anti-God forces. You may, Again, we, we look at it and we rightly stand against abortion. But do we see it? Do we see it as a global movement against God? Against God. It's hard to read the book of Genesis and not be drawn into this concept of fruitfulness. And what we see uh, is by some described in this day... Not as culture, as life-giving culture, but as death works. Death works. And this is certainly the opposite of God's clear command for fruitfulness. Pharaoh commanded the abortion of male children. Fearing that Israel would overpower and dominate them, Pharaoh's plan for God's people was to use them for his own selfish purposes. This is not the flourishing God intended and indeed commanded. It's not culture, but... Death works. Now we also see a certain creation motif, if you will, a reversal of this creation motif in the plagues. Children, when you think about the plagues of Egypt, you might, uh, it, they're, they're really fascinating, right? When you see about the frogs, for instance, and the gnats and the flies, and you see uh, the, uh, the river turn to blood and so forth. And what you see in this is a reversal 
of the goodness of creation. It's creation that's turned bad. And we see that when the people of God aren't really following God, then He allows the creative forces, He, he actually allows the wilderness animals uh, to, to then uh, encroach upon the people because they're not following Him. God crushed Egypt for this crime perpetrated against Israel and God, His anti-God declaration with these creation reversals. And we also see this creation motif continue when we look, for instance, in Exodus chapter 2, verse 2. The narrative of the birth of Moses. Now again, we see that God has built into the Scriptures and into the sweep of human history uh, these things that are similar and should be seen by us as those things that God intends for us in in His repetition for us to really get, for us to really understand. The story of Noah and the ark should be in your minds as you look at Moses. As a matter of fact, this word ark is only used two times in two different types of places in the Bible. One is with Noah, the other is with Moses. Noah was was in an ark, the ark saved him. Moses, of course, also was in this tiny ark and the water saved Moses as well. But also there's something else. In verse 2 of chapter 2, we see here that um, Moses' mother, the woman here, verse 2, conceived and bore a son. When she saw that he was a fine child, she hid him three months. Now, this word in ESV, translated fine child, is the same exact word that is used over and over again in Genesis when God made something and it was good. And it was good. And so this this would echo in the minds of the Hebrew reader anyway, as they would think back on what it is that God made. They would see that, again, we have God setting in place, if you will, a prototype, a Savior, right, in Moses, and it was good. Okay, and then we see that he will use Moses in his redemptive work. As Israel's redemption from Egypt is described in creation language, so is the redemption in Christ. You might consider the Gospel of John, for instance. John's Gospel begins with the words, In the beginning. In the beginning. And we should see in that, again, uh, uh, the Lord using this concept, this creation language for us to really understand what is He doing in redemption. What is He doing in the Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ? It is, it is in the category, if you will, of God's good creation. The creation motif throughout Scripture is structurally vital to the message of the Gospel. The re- redemption to come in Christ is a new beginning. We see that the Lord Jesus is referred to by the Apostle Paul several times as the new Adam. What should we think of? Obviously, when we think of Adam, we think of God's creation, the creation of the first man, the creation of the first woman in Eve. The redemption of the individual believer is also described in creation language, most notably in 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17, a familiar Passage to you, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed away, and the new has come. Creation language. The language of creation. And so today, in our, in our day, 
Uh, it is certainly true that many of the forces of the world, and as a matter of fact, some evangelicals desiring, strangely, to make the gospel attractive and accessible to people who reject God, want to do away with this idea that, uh, of, of God's creation out of nothing. And so I reference a Christianity Today, a recent article in Christianity Today, which was in fact a book review by a book written by Lauren Harsima, who teaches at Calvin College, as I understand it. The book is entitled, When Did Sin Begin? Human Evolution and the Doctrine of Original Sin. And in this article, the very approving uh, writer of this article, Jay Johnson, uh, says that modern evangelicals uh, often reject uh, supposed clear, honest, inconvertible science by refusing to synchronize evolution with the Bible. As a matter of fact, Jay Johnson proposes that many people leave the church because the church rejects evolution, because the conservative church reject, rejects evolution. And so, and so the, uh, the title of the article is, is Evangelicals Have Four Proposals for Harmonizing Genesis and Evolution. Now, I'm not going to read these four proposals. I'm not going to take the time to do that. But suffice it to say that none of them is true to the biblical record. The first is God selected Adam and Eve from an existing population. The first two uh, are shaped in that way. The third one, Adam and Eve aren't literal individuals. And then fourthly, Adam and Eve are symbolic figures in an archetypal story. Over a long period of time, humans became morally accountable. That's not the biblical record. You see, and again, when we reject the biblical record of Genesis, we're not only rejecting Genesis, right? We're also rejecting this creation language, this idea that God has the ability and in fact did create of nothing a complete being as He purposed without the necessity of millions of so-called developing years under the direction of truly mindless chemical forces. This is critical for us, right? This is critical. God does what He does, right? He created a fully mature man and woman named Adam and Eve in the Scriptures. And we see that it's not just convenient for God's people to embrace this. The reality is, if you, if you, if you want, and I would encourage you to look after, uh, there is absolutely a groundswell of overwhelming evidence for the biblical literal record of Genesis. And so I commend those things to you. Henry Morris, one of the writers, early on writers of these, uh, entitled a book, certainly is very appropriate, uh, and that is The Long War Against God. So certainly, evolution and the concepts of evolution stand in the same history and the same stead, as you will, of Pharaoh, king of Egypt, as an anti-God force. It's an anti-God force. It's in opposition to the things of God. And so we see this creation language in the book of Exodus. That's the first point. Now, secondly, I draw your attention to Exodus chapter 19. Exodus chapter 19. 
And I'd like to read verses 1 through 6 of Exodus 19 as we look at this sweep of the progress of redemption in the book of Exodus here. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. There Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So what we see here secondly is this, this, of course, the presentation of the law of God. And this idea of the law of God. This also is a, is a sweeping theme throughout Scripture. Right? We see that the law of God is exalted in the Bible. The law of God is a, continual, uh, is a continual thing upon which those people called of God, the redeemed people, focus upon the law of God. We see that the law of God in Exodus is revealed as the character of God. It's a revelation. And we see, uh, we see that, that this law of God is given to who? Who is the law of God given to? Well, let me form this query in the shape of a multiple-choice answer. Just two answers. Two options. Did the law, was the law by God given to a redeemed people or an unredeemed people? This is very, very important. The law of God was given to a redeemed people. The law of God was given to a redeemed people. You see, already their redemption was accomplished. And then the law of God was given to them. This, the reason that this is so important is because this is the same pattern that God continues to use throughout the Scriptures. The law of God is only applicable and it is only appropriate for a redeemed people. The, the Lord God says, Be holy, for I... Am holy. The Bible says in verse 6 here of chapter 19 in Exodus, And you shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. The law of God describes how to be holy. In the book of Exodus here, we see again that there are two main bodies of the law given. The first body of the law, the Ten Commandments, given in chapter 20, right after this. You see there, beginning in chapter 20 of verse 1, we see the Ten Commandments, and secondly, what is often referred to as the Book of the Covenant in chapter 21 through chapter 23. And this contains laws about slaves, about restitution, about dealing with people justly, and laws about the Sabbath and festivals. Now I draw your attention back to Exodus 19 and verse 6. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests. 
Now, we recognize that that priestly class uh, that we see technically will come from the line of Levi, right? The sons of Aaron. But what we see here is really, in many ways, should be considered a great commission command. Uh, This is not unlike what the Lord told Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, that his seed would be a blessing to all the families of the earth. And so what we see here again is insight into what the Lord is doing. The Lord isn't referring, I'm persuaded as are most Bible students, that the Lord wasn't referring to the Levites in Exodus 19.6. He was referring to all of those whom God will call to Himself, a kingdom of priests. This idea is repeated throughout Scripture. We see it ultimately in the book of Revelation as well. It's a high calling to be a kingdom of priests. Of all people, God has chosen this people. He didn't ask them. Did you ever think of that? God didn't ask the children of Israel to be His people. When God calls an individual, it's not exactly a question. My children know that when I often ask them to do things, I phrase it in the form of a question, not because it truly is a question. It's an expression of humility. Would you please do this? My children understand that that is a command from their father. Uh, God didn't ask us to be His people. We wouldn't be smart enough to choose Him because of our depravity. The reality is, is that God changes us and He calls us to Himself. God's law that we would be holy is given to a redeemed people. The giving of the law also is an act of recreation. Israelites are to behave as new creation beings, conforming themselves to God's standards in every sphere of life. This was new for them. This was very, very new. You see, the people of Israel were focused on what as they came out of Egypt? Well, unfortunately, they're not, they're not unlike many of our countrymen today. Many of our countrymen today are content to see their own liberties removed, right? As long as they can do what? I don't know. You can fill in the blank. It's a short list. It's a short list, right? But we know that the children of Israel, when they came out of Egypt, they were very sensual in their ideas. In other words, I don't mean that so much in a sexual sense, although certainly there was some impact there, but they were drawn to things that they feel, taste, and touch. They longed for the foods of Egypt. They longed for the regularity of Egypt. Yes, they were in slavery, but they didn't really seem to mind that so much as they had three meals a day and things were kind of regular for them. 
but yet they were chosen of God. They had the law of God, as we mentioned last week, imposed upon them, right? And they often, as we see, as a matter of fact, in the middle of the tabernacle instructions, have attempted to create their own religion by creating a calf and worshiping it. But God says, no, no, no. No, I'm, I'm, this, is, this, is not, this is not some sort of joint effort where we're collectively coming up with how to worship me. <laughs> no, no. This, this is a heavenly idea. And this is what it looks like in the tabernacle. And this is what it looks like in worship. The law also has a very important place in the New Testament, further revealed as the character of God. The content of the teaching of Christ didn't abrogate the law of God, but more fully explained its content and application. The New Testament indicates that law-keeping is now possible for the redeemed in Christ as it is written on their heart. The beauty of God's law is a revealed indication of His character and love for His people has fallen, certainly on hard times. And this is something that we feel as Americans as well. Some, some Americans, I'm inclined uh, that perhaps have a bit more clarity than others, are hoping for a better day when we as Americans enjoy living under the rule of law. Did you ever think that you might hear that? We, we actually desire the rule of law, right? We actually, we long for the day when there are actually laws that are uh, of the people and for the people, that they actually have been through the legislative process and so forth. And so we as a people, we are now living in what appears to be absolutely selfish, random impositions of desires of those that rule us very poorly. And the people in Egypt understood that, right? And God's people were beginning to have a consciousness and a, and a mind that as, as one who is following God, began to understand and desire, right, this, this idea that God, my maker, has given to me the way to live. This is how to live. This is how this works, right? Yes, you have tried this, and you will try this poorly and wrongly, and you will find that living in a way that is in opposition to God and to His character will not work. And God has set before Again, his people, the law of God. We could look no further than the 119th Psalm to see what a godly, growing appreciation for God's law looks like. And so, I'd like to ask you to turn to Psalm 119. Children, do you have any idea how many verses are in Psalm 119? One hundred and seventy-six verses. It's broken up. Uh, 
Were you able to read this in Hebrew, you would notice that it's broken up into, uh, into letters of the Hebrew alphabet. You would see that each section, likely, if you have a, an ESV Bible or perhaps other Bibles, it's broken up, and you will notice that the first section is entitled Aleph there, Beth, Gimel. This is the, uh, this is the Hebrew alphabet. And so it was, why was it written in this way? It was written in this way so that it could be memorized. These were mnemonic psalms here. If these attitudes certainly may seem foreign to us, so let's consider just the very first verse in Psalm 119. Blessed are those whose way is blameless, who walk in the law of the Lord. Now this may seem very foreign to us. We may uh, attribute this to to the days of the Old Testament and the Israelites just coming out of Egypt, right? This is, this is for us. Let's, let's look further into this psalm. Let's look at verses 9 through 12. 9 through 12, the second section of the psalm here. How can a young man keep his way pure? I'm glad you asked that. By guarding it according to your word, says the Bible, with my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. I have stored up your word in my heart that I might not sin against you. Blessed are you, O Lord. Teach me your statutes. This is a fascinating idea because what you see here over and over and over again is the attribution to Almighty God such that The psalmist here is desirous and, in fact, exalts God for what? For His law. Thank you, God, for the law that you have given. Does this not seem so foreign to us as God's people? But yet this theme, the law of God, is that which does, in fact, sweep through the Bible, Old and New Testament, as does the theme of creation. Let's look further in Psalm 119 and verse 89. Verses 89 to 92. Forever, O Lord, your word is firmly fixed in the heavens. Your faithfulness endures to all generations. You have established the earth as it stands fast. By your appointment they stand this day. For all things are your servants. If your law had not been my delight, I would have perished in my affliction. It seems strange to us in some ways, doesn't it? I direct your attention to 129 and 130. And we'll leave this 119th Psalm after that. Your testimonies are wonderful, therefore my soul keeps them. The unfolding of your words gives light and imparts understanding to the simple. Think of it. The standards of God, the the ways of God revealed in His Word. And the psalmist here is speaking of it in such glowing terms. Oh, how I love your law. Oh, oh, how it it has transitioned me. God, working through your commands, has worked its way in my life. You see, the desirability of the law of God, the beauty of the law of God, the association of the law of God, not with with a mean ogre God, but with a loving, shepherding God. 
right? We see, we see the, the terms of greatest affection applied to God in the context of His law. Psalm 119, every single verse, children, every single verse, 176 verses, every single verse has a reference to the law of God. Every single verse. I commend you. I, com- I commend this psalm to you. It, it, is, it, is, it is like a, a fun activity to look at each verse and see where's the reference to the law of God. Thirdly, I draw your attention to the tabernacle. To the tabernacle in Exodus. Thirteen of the last sixteen chapters of Exodus cover the instructions and actual building of the tabernacle. It's more than simply a building. The design was literally created in heaven as a reflection of heaven, designed to be a piece of heaven, in a sense, as was the Garden of Eden, the Garden of God, where God communed with man. The tabernacle really is, in many ways, the next iteration, the the intermediate fulfillment of that ultimate earth and heaven coming together, new heavens, new earth coming together. What we see is the Garden of God, the Garden of Eden, right? What happened there? Adam and Eve were kicked out of the garden, right? We see the next idea here that represents this of certainly was the tabernacle. Uh, this idea that this is where God meets. We have the holy of holies, if you will. The glory of God is shown there. It dwelled with God's people in the tabernacle. And then we see that it sweeps, of course, to the Lord Jesus Christ. I draw your attention to chapter 26 in Numbers. Not Numbers, Exodus Exodus 26, verses 31 to 35. Exodus 26, verses 31 to 35. This is, we're stepping right in to the middle of where the tabernacle, the instructions are, are being given for the tabernacle. And were you to read through this, it, it really is overwhelming. I, I recognize that you're just like, wow, this is really amazing. You may wonder, well, like, how did the children of Israel carry all these things out of Egypt? You, you, it's appropriate for you to wonder that. You might wonder how they continue to just keep giving and giving to this tabernacle. Also, you might wonder about all the very, very detailed instructions. 26, verse 31. You shall make a veil of blue and purple and scarlet yarns and fine twined linen. It shall be made with cherubim, skillfully worked into it. Children, what's cherubim? What is a cherubim? They're angels. You see, they're they're designing angels. Why why is that? Why Why angels? Who designed this? God designed this. We might should make note of the fact that Moses wasn't translated to heaven to get this design. God came down. This is heaven on earth. What would it be like? What would it be like if God described to you how to make the Rocky Mountains stone by stone, tree by tree? Or what if He were to describe to you and have for you to build the giant redwoods in California. 
What would that look like? Would it, would it look like a very simple thing, do you think, for, for you to walk away from the giant redwoods with this beautiful towering tree? Would it, would it be very simple, do you think? I think it would be quite detailed. You see, again, we have really a combination of the creation motif here with the tabernacle. Peace by peace. And this is, and, and we should be drawn to the splendor of our God that created the heavens and the earth. And we look at His description and His design and instruction to a people who are going to build a tabernacle to the glory of God. A movable place of worship. The sheer quantity and detail of the materials and building instructions reveal that the tabernacle was an earthly representation of heaven, of a higher reality. When you read through this, we could at least appreciate that. The tabernacle theme is also transformed in the New Testament. The Lord Jesus is described as the new temple and the new tabernacle. I draw your attention to John, the Gospel of John. John chapter 2, verse 19, Jesus answered, Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. The Lord Jesus Christ is placing all of His hearers on notice that your understanding of the temple is officially changed. Think of it no longer as bricks and mortar. Right? Think of it as the Lord Jesus Christ, the place where man and God meet. John chapter 1, verse 14. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen His glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now again, there is a place here where we as English readers are a bit... Uh, we, we, we're not really introduced to the beauty of the connection here because the word, as likely you have heard, dwell among us is the same word, tabernacle, tabernacle. This idea that the Lord Jesus Christ, again, is this tabernacle, the same sort of word. And we also see this glory, no doubt a reference to the glory which resided above the ark in the most holy place referred to in Exodus chapter 40. So again, we see in the Lord Jesus Christ, tabernacle and glory. This sweep through the Scriptures, not only with creation language regarding redemption, right? Not only with the law of God given to a redeemed people, but we see also with this tabernacle that will ultimately have its fulfillment in the Lord Jesus Christ. The new heavens and the new earth. There'll be no temple there. It's like the whole thing is a holy of holies. It'll be a magnificent thing. And God helps us understand that in the book of Exodus. Let's pray.